Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. Please remember that all of the information in this podcast episode is limited to general information only. That means the information is not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So you should seek the advice of a licensed and trusted financial professional before acting on the information. And before you acquire or apply for a financial product, please read the PDS or product disclosure statement, which should be available on the issuer's website. Lastly, please keep in mind that past performance is not indicative of future performance. Welcome back to this episode of the Australian Investors Podcast. Today, we're talking results and reporting season. We've got CBA's results and how to digest those and analyze those quickly as an analyst or as an investor. We're talking about Elmo and its annualized recurring revenue, why a near bond thinks it may be slowing down in some respects, but why it also could be cheap. So we get into the weeds of software businesses, how to analyze bank shares, and we talk about all the other stuff like COVID and how we prepare for reporting season in general. We've had some great engagement on our Twitter feeds. Just a reminder that if you want to reach out to us, you can hit us up on Twitter at 7A Mahanti and at Owen Rusk. Also, Anirban and I record these via Zoom. So he's in Sydney, I'm in Melbourne. If you want to watch as we go into these annual reports and explain things that might be relevant to you and how you can do it yourself, jump onto the Rask Australia YouTube channel. You'll find a link in the podcast player and there you'll be able to discover exactly what we're looking at as we walk you through these results. As always, there are two stocks at the end, so we hope you enjoy them. If you have any stocks that you want us to take a look at, be sure to reach out to us on Twitter. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Australian Investors Podcast. Anirban, thanks for taking some time to join me, mate. How are you going? Matt, I am fantastic or as fantastic as I can be um, given lockdowns and everything else. But, you know, I have, my hair is growing and I, I, you know, I actually shampooed it nicely today. Um, <laughs> Maybe next week so, or the month after you'll have a ponytail and you can. Well, yeah, you know, like, you know, have you heard of the term? Uh, so this, you know, this is again off script, right? So a priest who goes to Himalayas is going to be known as a sadhu. So S-A-D-H-U, they have long hair and long beard. So maybe I'll become a sadhu by, <laughs> I don't know, by the end of November or December, whenever our lockdown finishes, uh, the barbershops are definitely closed until then. And I'm not trying to, I have got actually instrument uh, at home to be my own barber. But the last, because I did, I did that, um, you know, uh, in the previous <laughs> iterations of the lockdown, and uh, yeah, my wife and daughter were both not impressed. So <laughs> I think I did something similar last year. How long have you been in lockdown now? So you're in Sydney. I'm in Melbourne for those listeners who don't know. How, how long have you been in lockdown? That's a great question. You know, I am so numb to this lockdown thing that I, I'm probably guessing at least a month now, I would say. I feel like. I feel like it's even longer than that. It's probably even longer than that because, you know, like maybe six weeks easily. So we're recording this on the 11th of August and it was the 26th of June, I believe. Holy First mother. set wow. of restrictions. Yeah, no. So restrictions weren't really low. So there was restrictions where you could, you know, put on a mask and still go get your coffee. Um, you know, like I have a morning chore of getting my coffee from a particular shop. Um, but Yeah. <laughs> It looks like it was around that date, according to the New York Times. So, yeah, you've been in, you've been in lockdown for six say six weeks. Yeah, long time. So long time, you know. So, you know, I'll become a priest or something uh, by the end of November. 
and, and then we'll see. <laughs> you know what's, you know, we've got to count our blessings here, mate, because you and I can still work from home. In fact, we work from home most of the time anyway. So that's right. Um, what have you been working on since you've been, since I spoke to you last, since last week? Has there been anything in particular? Oh, lots of earnings. So, you know, many of the companies that I follow closely, they've reported earnings um, so far, mostly very good. And um, uh, well, there was one company called Fastly, which uh, had <laughs> really poor earnings. Uh, there's one company called Cloudflare, which sort of competes with Fastly, which has excellent earnings. Um, and uh, yeah, lots, lots of earnings has been there. I've been going through my watch list, looking for what, you know, what stock to recommend next month. And uh, that's a process, you know, what happens, like, unlike many, so in, in seven investing, different people have different styles, which is always interesting. And I have like 20 stocks easily, maybe 25, actually 30, maybe on my watch list. Mm. And every month I find it like picking one, which I really have the highest conviction is, is a challenge because, you know, if somebody told me pick 30 stocks, I can actually do that. That is easier done than picking one. <laughs> so like i i look I look at my list and i i have a back pocket wreck um oh a couple of back pocket wrecks which i think are like you know fantastic you know market beating ideas um but probably you know maybe more well-known and i try not to go for a well-known name that's that's been my thing my thing is that you know you know a well-known name sometimes to me seems like you know I can say, well, go buy Apple, but that's a little bit of a cheating. I find that's a little bit of a cheating because a lot of people who subscribe to, you know, stock picking newsletters want to find something a little bit maybe underfollowed, you know, under the radar, mid cap type of, you know, growth opportunities and things like that. Mm. Um, but, you know, that's, that's what I personally think uh, that might actually be completely untrue <laughs> what people <laughs> expect. Um, and, 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 and then again, of course, in the, in the gamut, you know, we have seven, seven folks picking stocks and, you know, we do pick some, you know, more well-known and established names that we think are market beaters as well. So I just try to, yeah. So I mean, anyways, it's a process. So that's what I've been doing. I've, I think narrowed it down to maybe top five uh, thus far. <laughs> and, and, and then we'll see from there. So, you know, yeah. What you said that um, Fastly had performed poorly during the quarter and Cloudflare performed well. Um, is For those who don't know, these are two content delivery networks, um, which also kind of teeter on the, 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 the edge of cybersecurity as well. Um, so what was it because Fastly's network went down? Is that the big reason? Yeah. So that's a great question. So Fastly, so both of these companies have some similarities and some differences. So, uh, Cloudflare is like Fastly a content delivery network, but it's also, it's basically a, it's a really difficult company to explain largely because what they do is, is they provide security performance and reliability services. So if you run, a, if you are actually a corporate and you want to run a network, you could actually have your network run through Cloudflare. If you are, if you host a website, your website could be hosted by Cloudflare and protected by Cloudflare, right? Then, if you want uh, zero trust security, you can actually also go to Cloudflare for that. Then, if you wanted to have edge computing, basically like you want to do cloud computing, but at the edge of the network, then you can go to Cloudflare. So Cloudflare does a bunch of different things, but they also do content delivery. Fastly is basically a content delivery company with um, edge networking component. So you could do some edge computing, you know, cloud computing at the edge using Fastly. So that, that's where there the are similarities. So I think, yes, so Fastly's network was down. Large parts of the internet were down because of Fastly. 
um, that spooked some um, of their users. So I think of the sort of the top ten users, the, the top ten clients that they've got using their network, one of them hasn't returned, and although it seems like it's going to come back, traffic is down from the others. Now that might seem like an oddity, like you know, how can traffic be down? Traffic can be down because suppose I'm a company like Amazon and I need content delivery services, I might use Fastly, I might use Akamai, I might use Cloudflare, I might use, you know, because you, everybody has a multi, multi um, CDN approach, yeah. right? Yeah. So then what happens is that because, you know, maybe they're not feeling good about something that they can divert traffic to the other ones, right? So, and so the Fastly is feeling the pinch of that. And of course, then they had some slowdown in acquisition of new customers. Yeah, so Fastly has been having a, what I would call execution challenges for past few quarters, mm. in my opinion. I still do own the stock, so uh, yeah. <laughs> so, but that's my thing. I, if, I buy, if I bought something, I'm really slow to sell. Um, so, and, and, and the reason behind that is it sounds odd, right? Why to hold a stock that's underperforming? A, you know, the problem is that you never know it is underperforming until it has underperformed, <laughs> at mm. which point you think it is cheap. And it doesn't mean that it can't become cheaper. It can, right? But then on the other hand, if you look at volatility of, uh, of companies, fast-growing companies, many fast-growing companies have, uh, or many innovative companies have had huge, huge pullbacks. Like even a company like Apple, for example, which is like a huge company, it has had 25, 30%, 35% pullbacks from its all-time highs. A company like Netflix has had 75% pullback, right? A company like Amazon has had 90% pullback from its all-time highs. So that's one of the reasons I try not to get um, too spooked out. <laughs> Your position already becomes small when it has pulled back that much. But yeah, I mean, it, right now it's having some serious execution issues, um, mm. but it's got some big clients, so... It does. And I think that's one of the things that Fastly's done differently to Cloudflare. Cloudflare's had a lot of the medium sort of enterprise market. Like we use Cloudflare as well. And on our like on our side of the fence, we use Cloudflare, but on the like our cloud providers side, they use Fastly. So mm. like it's like a multi-vendor, multi-city and approach. Um, and so our website went down when uh, Fastly's network went down, not because we chose them, but because that, that was what the hosts were using. Yeah, um, which is yeah. Yeah, it was really interesting. I, I was looking at Fastly during the pandemic and like the first outbreak, and I was thinking, oh, this is a really interesting company. It takes a bit of time to get your head around it because of what it does. But at the time, I thought it was the more you know, attractive one of the two being um, Fastly and Cloudflare. Fastly is now, according to Google Finance, at least, which we know isn't always accurate, a $5 billion company. Um, Cloud, Cloudflare is nearly 40 billion. So how the times have changed. I wonder if they would be eyeing them off. Yeah, like, you know, here's the thing, right? So I think Cloudflare is a, as I said, difficult company to understand because it's not. So I think, you know, they would describe themselves as they're not really a CDN. Yeah. So they're basically CDN for them is an afterthought. Um, what they do really well is denial of service attack prevention. They, you know, yeah, if, really if you have a, if you have a site behind them, they can do, um, um, you know, performance management, right? So basically they'll scale up, the they'll scale up or pop up more servers for you, um, which allows, you know, your site to scale. They do those things very well. Their edge computing platform is really good because that they've used that to build like this zero trust solution. So if you're a company, you can, you know, use Cloudflare's Teams uh, software 
Um, and then you basically have access to a zero trust sort of secure end-to-end -end, um, thing. They, they, they even have a wrap protocol for, you know, for your mobile phone and stuff like that, that you can just download and use. Um, so it's basically a DNS service. Um, so I, I think it's, it's a little bit of a complicated company. It's also a fast-moving company. They, they innovate very, very quickly. So um what else um this is an intro okay this is, i'll stop here because i think this is we've, we've gone completely off script now <laughs> <laughs> so, um, okay so, so here's here's the thing about cloud so, so vendrock uh was one of the early founders uh, early venture capital investors in um cloudflare mm -hmm. okay uh there's another company vendrock had funded one of the first i think funds that they're in that was called apple right <laughs> And they made, I think, a lot of money on their Apple, but they've actually made a lot more on their, um, their Cloudflare investment. So that's a little bit of a uh, Cloudflare. There's actually, if somebody has time, they can read the Cloudflare script. There was a question, because Cloudflare's um, um, network and some of Cloudflare's technology is being used by Apple for this Apple private relay thing that they're doing. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a question about, you know, okay, how's that going? But, you know, because anything that you do with Apple, you have no... Apple probably has got you a, non a confidentiality document that you can't say. So instead of answering that particular question, the, the CEO, Matthew Prince, basically told, told them about Vendrock, the history with Vendrock, then his history with investing in Apple and how his Apple shares paid for his Harvard Business School and um, uh, founding of this company. So <laughs> there's a little, there's a little uh, backstory there. It was like what I call a perfect non-answer. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's, that's great. Um, so those are those two companies, Fastly, FSLY, and Net, which is on, that's Cloudflare on the New York Stock Exchange. Um, so just before we get into it, you can, or we already are into it, you can join us on Twitter at 7A Mahanti. You'll find the link in the show notes to catch up with Anirban. And myself at Owen Rask, it's at O-W-E-N-R-A-S-K. You'll find both of us on Twitter. So join the conversation, say good day, suggest some future topics for us. Um, so... There's a couple of things that we'll get to just in terms of um, company results, a lot here on the ASX, but also some other stuff that we've got prepped. Um, one of the things I should just say that I've been working on, I've been um, looking at Fastly or Cloudflare, but though I should be by the sounds of it, uh, mainly just preparing for ASX reporting season. I think we're kind of fortunate here in Australia. We can look at a lot of the US reports, have about a week or two, which is where we are now, and then go into the ASX, the thick of the ASX reports. But this week, Wednesday, the 11th of August, we have actually started to see some ASX companies drop some results. And one of those, which we'll get to in, the, in a minute, is CBA. Uh, we've seen Almo report as well and a few others. But um, before we get to that, mate, I, maybe I just thought I'd ask you, what are some of the ways that you prepare yourself for reporting season? Because you said you have 30 companies on your watch list before. How do you keep up? How do you manage? Do you do anything in advance that maybe other investors could do too to get on top of their portfolio? So I don't do anything specific. So if a company, so as I said, I have 30 companies on my watch list, but most of those companies probably are companies that I already own on as a portfolio in my own portfolio mm -hmm. or portfolios. So I know them pretty well. Uh, one of the advantages of, um, so here's the thing I can suggest to most lists for newbies. Most people don't listen or hear a conference call that can be actually very, very useful because it just the tone of the answers, you know, it tells you a lot. And I think I, I suggest to people that you should listen to them. 
it also is an opportunity for you to learn from management how they're thinking about the company, right? So this is, I think, a great. And actually for the ASX, I'll say it's doubly important because many ASX companies do not produce like a good um, half-year report where you can get an understanding of what the business is. But you can get a very good understanding of the business by actually going to the conference call. Listen, and here's another advantage. This is an ASX-only advantage. An individual investor can actually ask a question uh, on an ASX conference. For most of them, especially the mid-cap to small-cap ones, you can. I don't know about the large caps. I don't think you can ask a question to the CBA CEO, uh, but you'll be able to ask to the Elmo CEO if you wanted to, right? And I think that's an advantage because that's an opportunity for you to ask questions. So that's what I would say is to get on to the conference calls and then make notes. And you'd find it's like studying, right? It's like studying for physics or chemistry. You know, the more you study, the more you learn about the company, the more, and the more you study different companies, the more you learn. Okay, I can compare this with that. And, and it's just it's just that, really. It's, it's, I don't know, there's no secret sauce, <laughs> except that, you know, the more studying you do, the more you learn, the more you learn, the, the, you know, the better you get at identifying things quickly, right? Mm. So, you know, what takes me now, maybe 20 minutes, used to probably take me one hour maybe 10 years ago, right? No, so now I can sort of look at, okay, this, 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 and this. I can say, boom, okay, yeah. uh, this is out <laughs> and this is still in my watch list. So yeah. you get better at yellow flags. I always find that, do it, obviously you got to do the work before the results. Uh, sometimes you can, like our job, both of us, is to find market-beating investment ideas. And results season is a good time to do that. But oftentimes you, you, you're pretty, it's pretty hectic trying to keep up with what you already have. Um, but one of the, obviously you got to do the work in advance is what I mean to say. So, you know, having, if you're into modeling and, and doing all that, you do that in advance. Um, and the way I think about it is that I try and identify the one, two or three variables that I believe are most important for every company. So whether that's a company's customer acquisition cost or whether it's ARPU, average revenue per user, whether it's a retention rate, which we'll get to in a minute, um, all of these things, I try and identify the two or three that are most important in advance. So then when it comes to the day, I can be, I can go straight to the, where I expect the, the numbers to be and be like, okay, bang, this is, didn't hit expectations or my expectations. This did, this didn't, that there's my checklist. And, and then I can focus more on, so like actually then taking a step back and, and actually reading through the report. But um, I, I've heard in the past, a lot of investors talk about, you know, it's really important to be prepared for results day and you've got to act fast if you want to you want to you want to make a position things like that and i think that's totally the wrong approach i think i don't think i've ever made i don't think i've ever made a decision based on a single quarterly report or half year report um i guess that's just lends itself like we're, we're long-term investors right like you said slow to sell before I, i'm extremely slow to sell and that served me very well so i guess i don't really buy into that but i just do like to manage my time effectively as effectively as i can so having those two or three variables in advance they might only you might only just write them down on a piece of paper you know if we're talking about a company like apple it might be iphone revenue chinese revenue um, and maybe installed base if you get any of those three variables maybe you're happy um and that's just an example but um, i try and do that for all the companies that that i cover um Okay, so here's an interesting one for you. I think we're going to maybe just jump straight into some a company here, which is a company called Elmo, which I know you're familiar with. You were tweeting about it the other day too. Um, can you maybe just mm -hmm. start off with maybe start off like what Elmo does, just in simple terms, and then the result, and then maybe we'll look at something that you wanted to talk about for software companies in particular. 
Cool. So, so given that you know we are on Zoom, right? Uh, I could actually do a screen share again. What do you think? Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> let's let, let's let's do that. Okay. And you know, pardon me if I get some of my, you know, sometimes you know during lockdowns I get. I'm actually going to try to do this. I'm going to have <laughs> do not disturb for one hour. Hopefully that will stop all those messages pinging me. But I'm going to do a screen share and let's see what happens. Oh, disabled by the host. Oh, again. This uh, is, oh, oh, this... Oh, Owen likes to have a tight leash on me so I don't <laughs> share wrong things. Here we um, go. Uh, Let me see what I can do here. Uh, um, yeah, so I'll keep talking about Elmo. So Elmo is basically a human uh, capital management software company. What that means is helps with, you know, if you want to like, you know, maintain leave allowance, you want to know how how to recruit people, how to keep people. It's an HR software, right? Along with that, they have a payment tool associated. So if you've got payments and human resource management that typically any medium scale to large scale company would need, um, Elmo basically sells a software to mostly the mid-market, they call it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so it's so not the large enterprises, but, you know, smaller than that. So I think this is like a thousand people or less is how they would describe it. But they've gone actually d- a down market as well for really the small companies. And, you know, many of these companies would be people that would be serving their human uh, capital management needs, either using spreadsheet or paper and pen. Right. So there's, there's, there's that. So it's a very interesting niche space uh, that they work on. Um, uh, but yeah, and it's an interesting company. So let me share my screen. And, yeah, so I uh, noticed they've got the, while well, you get the sharing up, I noticed that they've got Breathe, um, uh, which is less than 50 employees. And they've got the Elmo mid-market solution, which is five, uh, 50 to 2,000 employees. So they've got those, yeah. those two um, exactly. businesses. Exactly. So it's basically small to mid-market, right? So this was the results. The results, you know, so number one thing I want to talk about here is, it, many a times we'll see that the annual recurring revenue, in this case, this is an 83 point, about 84 million, let's call it, that's a 52% growth at a headline number that looks really good, but the M- Elmo is very acquisitive, right? So they acquired yeah. a lot of, so, so the growth is acquired. So below you see that they say 26% organic ARR growth, that's pretty good. Revenue is still trailing about 69 million versus 84 million. The revenue is trailing because, you know, the ARR, you sign new customers, they haven't yet, you know, paid uh, maybe for the full year, right? So, hmm. you know, it's still trailing, but, you know, it will eventually at, at long-term will start to sort of um, mash up together. Yeah. Uh, it, they're running at break-even. Uh, it's on, on an operating profit basis. So this is, this is good. A lot of cash on hand, so 82 million uh, cash on hand. Um, again, this is, remember, this is acquisitions. So if they have to, if they buy a $50 million company, they would <laughs> get rid of all the cash that they've got on hand, but eight, 82 million cash on hand is pretty strong. <clears throat> Ignore everything else that, you know, we've just talked about this, a Breed. And uh, so Breed is a company out of the UK. They, they now have sort of, um, the thing that I wanted to talk about is this is, you know, and there's a TAM. The TAM is, you know, pretty, it's pretty large if you think about it. And I think this is a niche space where the big enterprise, you know, the American software companies are not going to really compete because this is a really hard market to compete um, in. So if they do a good job, uh, they can, you know, occupy a decent chunk of this market, less than 5% penetration, less than 3% penetration. Mm. The the thing that I wanted to get to is um, one of the things that, you know, annoys me of this presentation is that there's a lot of details, you know, they show you, for example, in this particular slide, the organic ARR. Mm. 
and and you get the churn number here, right? So you look at this. This is interesting. If you look at the churn, the churn on dollar terms is seven million dollars, right, on ARR. So they started with fifty-five million um, in ARR, out of which they lost seven million. That's pretty big number mm. in terms of loss because what what typically happens in a in a great software company, the churn on a customer basis might be you know uh, less than five percent. Mm. But the churn on dollar basis, which is basically, if you look at the total dollars that you're getting from the customers you had, you have this year that were customers last year, you'd pretty much have more dollars from that set of customers. So that what that's known as basically dollar-based retention, yeah. right? So, and the dollar-based retention being more than hundred suggests that those people who you retained, they're actually spending more with you, which means there's a great product market fit. Um, and that actually is not, I think that's one thing that, these guys are not achieving. Now, there's one reason for that. And that, well, this is one reason I am, I think is the reason. And that's because they operate in the SMB space. Mm-hmm. So there might be uh, less opportunities to upsell, right? To, to sell new modules. And there is, there's always this thing that, you know, during the pandemic, for example, a lot of small businesses have been hurt. They might have to have cut costs. Maybe some have closed down. So there's churn. So churns levels, because there have been instances where the dollar-based expansion rate has been above 100% uh, for this company. Um, but, you know, and here's the thing, right? It, it, it's taking you me a while to find where that number is mm-hmm. <laughs> because that number is not good, right? So it's on slide number 13 where the net retention on a dollar basis is 96% for Elmo and the customer retention rate is 84%. That is, you know, stunningly low in the sense that 84, 85% is probably very similar to what zero had. So it's basically suggesting to you that um, you're getting that type of customer base, but the the net retention number being less than hundred percent that that is worrying in the sense that it means that you know you are really fighting hard to keep your customers, mm. right? uh, or at least on a dollar basis. And and the funny thing with net retention rate in a dollar base or dollar based net retention numbers are this has an exponential curve to it. So one hundred and twenty percent might seem like well it's only twenty percent more than hundred but it actually has an exponential difference because mm. every year, if you're able to do that, then in like 10 years, 120% is going to be substantially, substantially better than hundred percent because every year you're able to add that 20%. So I think this is, this is probably my only big red flag that I had. Um, the, yeah. So. Do, yeah. And for context, what would be the type of company that, you've come across that has a really good um, dollar retention rate. Like, is it? Yeah. So like, you know, so Australian I'll give you an example. Global? Well, so I'll give you a global example because they're off the top of my head. So completely class leading uh, dollar based net expansion numbers is a company called Snowflake. So yeah. it's a data warehousing company. That company has 140, 150, 160% net retention rates. Um, a company like Cloudflare that I just talked about that reports net retention rates above 120% regularly has done for several quarters. So 100, like 140, 150 is like really class leading. A few companies that 120% um, is is quite 
you know, to be called a tier one, in my opinion, in enter. But again, I want to caveat that by saying that that is enterprise software. And when I say enterprise software, I mean companies that serve large customers or larger customers. But here it's interesting to think about the fact that, you know, a company like uh, Cloudflare does that because Cloudflare also has many small customers. Yeah. Right. So it's still getting 120%, you know, shows A, the strength of their, um, um, their larger customers that they've got, but also the fact that, you know, they're just you know, running a better, tighter ship. So again, that's the thing. Uh, Elmo's number has been in the past at greater than hundred. So maybe this is the pandemic effect. I wasn't on the call to say that, but anyways, I thought this is interesting, but yeah. I'll caveat by one thing. The stock looks really cheap. <laughs> Otherwise. <laughs> interesting. Yeah. So the thing is, right. If you looked at Cloudflare's numbers, you'd probably see the customer retention rate lower if they do yes. have that, that tail of small customers um, because they're going to churn more often, right? Whereas the, yes. the larger enterprise clients, they're going to stay with the, their CDN or their, you know, cybersecurity stack if that's what they, you know, they've been using for years and it's worked for them. So I think, yeah, I, I think I guess the, the clues that these, that these things give us, the signals that they give us are just as um, important as kind of what the numbers actually are. So understanding why um, Elmo had 6% churn, um, and also understanding its growth strategy to, to acquire in the past, Elmo's strategy is kind of not, it hasn't always rubbed me the right way. So I think that's probably one of the hesitations I've had in the past, but, uh, and it's also a very competitive space in that there are many companies that do serve the lower end of the HR or HCM human capital management market for software. I mean, just even, yeah. you know, here at Rask, we've, we've trialed, I think two in the last month, right? And each of them would yeah. be fine. Um, it's just about choosing the right one. So yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, right. So the company um, that we might also just have a quick look at, which is going to be completely the opposite end of the spectrum and, and very, very boring for most people. But for some people who like income, <laughs> it's um, Commonwealth Bank. So what I might do is I might share my screen with you, um, seeing that I can do that now. And I'll talk along for those of you who are who are um, watching or sorry, listening, you can, you can still play along. So um, here we go. We've got Commonwealth Bank's annual report. So when I, I'll just, I mean, this is a huge report, right? This, this one itself is only eight pages. This is a summary, but um, I'll just take you through some of the things that I look at from a high level when I'm looking at a result like this and we can go through. The first thing is obviously loan impairment expense, given the environment. You can see it. It's like at the top of the page here. For those of you who aren't, who aren't watching, it's at the top of the page. It's right next to profit. Um, we can see profits well up. Um, CBA has made a bunch of divestments over recent years and obviously um, cleaned up its game in, insofar as since the um, 2020 recession, you could call it here in Australia, things have, have improved really well. And um I guess one of the things that we like to see from Australian banks in particular, because they are so leveraged, is this number here, which is the net interest margin. So you can see that CBA's net interest margin is 2.03%, or if you're a finance guy or gal, it's 203 basis points. That was down four basis points, which isn't the end of the world, but it, there is a trend that's happened in Australian banking for the better part of the last 20 years, which is a fall in net interest margins. And typically that's associated with a falling interest rate environment. Um, so as interest rates have come down, the profits that banks make um, on the lending activities has come down too. 
Um, we've seen many of the banks here in Australia face regulatory pressure, so they're even more dependent on this net margin, whereas in the past they might extract fees and have non-core business units like insurance and financial advice. Um, we can see that CBA here is growing above system um, in all of its key, key targets. So we've got business lending, home lending, and even deposits. I think 73% of Commonwealth Bank's uh, business model or, or capital stack is actually um, term deposits, which is, I believe is well and truly the highest of the big four banks here in Australia. And why is that important? Well, that helps it maintain a wide interest margin, net interest margin compared to its peers, um, which rely on wholesale debt markets, which can fluctuate depending on things like bond yields and currencies. So here on the left-hand side, again, we can see business lending was up. I'll just maybe add one more thing on this, which is that if a bank in an environment that seems very growthy is growing faster than the system or faster than the market, that might sound great, but it's not always a sign of a great bank because it can mean that it's lending ahead of the curve or its lending practices aren't quite up to standard. So you don't want to see a bank come out and um, just race out of the gates necessarily, although three-time system for business lending for CBA is quite fast in my opinion. Um, we can see the dividend came up and this is interesting and this is probably where the last two points are probably the most interesting for all listeners. CBA's dividend, final dividend was $2 a share, taking the full year to $3.50 fully franked. I guess the bigger thing for most investors was actually the buyback that was announced, which was above expectations, which is $6 billion. And not only that, they're buying back shares or they want to buy back your shares for more um, than what you can sell them for on the market, which is interesting too. So the dividend is important in my opinion, because that's how we arrive at a valuation for Commonwealth Bank. So I just tried to stick Commonwealth Bank's um, just very quickly before we jumped on air, tried to stick Commonwealth Bank into a dividend discount model. And I I had to really push it to get it above a $100 valuation. And when I say push it, I mean, you're dropping your discount rate below 7%, which depending on your outlook is maybe a fair expected return or not. I don't know. Um, obviously, the dividends for all banks are down since before COVID. Um, whether or not they come back to that, I don't know. They're targeting, I think it's 70 to 80% payout rates. But the reason that this is important is because when we look at the, the buyback, the $6 billion off-market share buyback, I want to see a bank do that when they believe the shares are cheap. Um, one of the problems that CBA has, I believe, is that they can't, like most of the banks, can't really deploy $6 billion of capital effectively. It's pretty hard for them here in Australia to deploy $6 billion. Even if you say, go out and innovate, what are they... What can they do with $6 billion here in Australia? Not that much, to be honest. So um, I just thought this was an interesting thing. It's an interesting report. Obviously, CBA has been the, the cream of the crop for well over 10 years now. Um, it was one of the banks that kind of held fast during the 2020 setback. And I don't know, mate, I don't know if you have any, have any insights here, but for, just to recap, some of the things that you'd look at for a bank, obviously, if you're looking for dividends, you'd look at dividends, but the net interest margin, you'd want to dive into why the net interest margin is held up loan impairment expense, still really good. Um, and that's really it. Like for me, for a bank, if I'm going for a quick glance, that's what I'm looking at. Um, deposit funding again was really good for CBA. They made a bunch of divestments. So I don't think there's much more to say, even though they've taken how many pages? 312 pages this year. So <laughs> we won't go through it all, but that's my high level look at, at CBA, mate. I don't know if you had any anything to, to say. I, 
I love it, Owen. I'm going to ask you questions instead of. <laughs> yeah, sure. So here, so here's my question. Question number one: What's the bear case, right? So I'll give you a bear case. So isn't mm-hmm. so the for CPA to make money basically the net interest margin basically means the net interest margin is a, is a very interesting concept, right? So they basically are borrowing. Uh, they're borrowing money from someone, which could include the depositors, right? So any fund that sits with them is basically a liability. Um, and they pay ne- nothing <laughs> right now on those term deposits. Uh, then they borrow money at nothing. And then they give out money and make something off it, right? And of course, uh, as the interest rates creep up, they are able to make more on the difference. So yep. the, so the, right now, the liability is actually pretty cheap, yep. uh, which is it's, it's a good, good thing. Um, now, they, the bulk of the money that they make is of housing, right? Yep. And the housing market has been super hot. Very counterintuitive, but has been super hot. At some point, this housing market has to cool or even, you know, I'm not even saying crash, <laughs> pull back. I'm just saying it has to cool down <laughs> from its exuberance, right? If there's somewhere that it's tulip mania, that's I'll call it the housing market. Uh, but does, it doubles every se- every seven years or every ten years, isn't it? So. Uh, yeah, but, but well, well, at at this rate, the problem with the with the housing market is that this at that rate, no Australian is going to have any house because they'll not be able to afford it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or, or let me put it this way: no Australian who doesn't have a house <laughs> is going to ever have a house. They might as well go to the moon or Mars and you know build a house there. They'll get a big backyard as well there. Uh, so they they should buy a ticket on Virgin Galactic or. Uh, uh, or, or space. It's, <laughs> it's about the same deposit, I believe. <laughs> and it's the same deposit. So, what's the bear case if the housing market cools off and doesn't result in mania making money for the banks? Isn't their cash profits going to pull back significantly? Yeah, of course. Yeah, and that's that's the bear case, right? So, but that's been the bear case. I think the thing is that's been the bear case for since ninety one, since the last recession, <laughs> right? And I'm, I'm a bit like it might sound facetious, but it's true. Like it, it is. It's yeah, been the case for a true. long time. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, I've often thought to myself, and this is probably going back right back to like the you know the Greek you know debt crisis, where I was thinking, geez, how's this thing going to play out for Australian banks and, and global wholesale markets and everything? And I've thought to myself, this is not good because the right, even if nothing really changes here in Australia, the lending markets could become tight, which pushes up rates. Um, and we haven't really seen that happen. The banks have managed that very well, especially Commonwealth Bank. I think the big things that you'd be mindful of is that kind of that thing that just eats away in the background, which is a lot of dilution. Uh, some of the big banks have been robbing Peter to pay Paul in, in some ways. You know, they've been paying dividends while also issuing stock, which it, it sounds great because you get the imputation credits, but uh, it's it's something if you're a long-term compounder, you want to see both of those things. You want to see dividends and growth, if ideally. Um, I'd, I'd say, you know, there's the, the implicit guarantee. What was it? Six basis points is what the government lever- uh, levered on these these big four banks, I believe it was. And that's effectively their insurance, right? Because the idea is that if the banks go out of business, we've got bigger problems than just what you know what's going on with Commonwealth Bank. And so there's that implicit guarantee that they would always be rescued. Now, that I, w- I want to have a big asterisk around that, I'll just wrap something around that, which is that just because that's the implicit guarantee, air quotes, doesn't mean that you as a shareholder are going to have a guaranteed return. So, you know, we would just see the equity fall out straight out the bottom of this thing. I think 
I can't remember the exact number. I should have it prepared it, but you know, CBA is leveraged in the high teens, I believe. So if you, if you think about that, there's not much that has to go wrong for those margins to compress and the, and the profits to quickly evaporate. So I know that's not really a direct way to say it because I don't think there is an answer specifically for it, but generally speaking, you would want to be prepared for that. And it all just comes back to, if you're going to buy a company like this, in my opinion, you buy it when it's below your estimate of fair value, because that's the most sensible time to do it. Um, and it's pretty easy business to model from a, a growth perspective. I had Mary Manning on the podcast many years ago, and she just, she summed it up really well, which is that when you look at a bank, opportunity is on the income statement, looking at those net interest margins, trying to forecast how much income they're going to bring in. Um, but risk is on the balance sheet. You know, um, how are they accounting for, for losses and provisioning for that? What's their capital adequacy ratio? The banks are pretty good here in Australia, in my opinion. Um, that doesn't mean that they're safe, but it just it means that they're pretty good. So we have a pretty well-run and regulated financial system. That's my very boring bank answer for you. I don't really have much more to throw back at you. No, I, th- I appreciate that. Yeah, no. So I, I would even say that, you know, it's not even the doomsday scenario. Like I, I, I'm not saying the banks are going to go bust. I just think that if the property market cools, then the bank's earnings are going to be hurt. Oh yeah. Even uh, if they go sideways, the, the bank's yeah, earnings are going to, are going to hurt. Yeah. yeah. So, so I have a rule of thumb for uh, <laughs> probably I'd never hit it because I'm not a bank buyer anyways. Like I say, buy them when their PE is like 10 or 12, <laughs> sell them when their PE is 18 to 20. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. And they're probably right now around that PE of 18 to 20. Another way to do that is to look at the price to book. Yeah. Price um, to book. Yeah. The price to book. And Australian banks tend to have, Australian banks are very similar to like Canadian banks. They've tended to trade at a much higher price to book than, say, an American bank would. Mm. Um, but the American but, banks know, have wider margins too. So you get them cheaper and they tend to be more efficient banks as yeah. well. The more efficient bank, but there's more competition as well in the American market. Um, yeah, there is. Yeah, uh, uh, in banking. So I mean, anyways, interesting uh, stuff. You know what? Uh, I'd I would, just can I just give you one more? I'd probably bear yeah. case that not many people are thinking about is the rise of neo banks in Australia and the open banking initiative. I don't think enough investors who have a ten to twenty year horizon are paying enough attention to those banks. Um, if I look around me and um, a lot of the the people that I know. They're banking with banks like Up Money, um, you know, banks that are, are typical, classical nowadays, classical neo banks, where you know you get good interest rates, you get great apps, you get great technology, you can transfer your data around. It's it's secure, it's seamless. You don't need a branch. So um, maybe they're they're going to play a bigger role in terms of competition than some of like you know the HSBCs and the INGs that have attempted to come into Australia. Maybe that's something to be mindful of as well. You know, I was going to make a uh, joke. I was going to say that uh, you know, after pay, uh, sorry, not after pay, all the banks, you know, they like to make fun of you know, buy now, pay later. But you know, the greatest buy now, pay later, or buy now and pay never, is actually buying property. So, <laughs> so, <laughs> they, they have to be careful of, with that one. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's, it's effectively buy now, pay never in 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 in, in real like you know, when you're buying a one point whatever five million dollar property, you know, you could pretty much. Uh, <laughs> continue living your entire life and then at the end when you die <laughs> you still probably have debt so it's buy now pay never so you know i tell the banks stop making fun of afterpay. <laughs> uh, that's great actually that that is a you know we talked um about paypal um it's not just neobanks right we talk about apple pay paypal square all these businesses in the last few weeks you know i, th- I think it was i don't know if it was matt common or cba ceo or before that ian narev 
who basically identified Apple Pay as one of the major risks to their business model. Um, not necessarily straight away, but it, you know, a decade or two down the line, what does that become? Um, and they're still throwing their arms up in the air saying, this isn't right. How can these businesses you know, do this? And it's funny when the, the I guess it's on the other hand. Um, one more thing before, one more company thing before maybe we get to these personal finance things, mate. Um, a lot of, we, we, you and I spoke off air just a little bit because you've been in lockdown for so long and I'm still in lockdown, um, is Moderna shares jumped 17%. And this was an interesting announcement. Um, maybe I'll throw it over to you to explain why it may, may or may not be exactly what people think. Yeah, so like, so if the headline says Moderna shares are up uh, 17% because the Australians have approved the use of Moderna uh, vaccines or whatever number of vaccines we're buying, well, well, the only thing I say to people is, hey, we're a small population, right? <laughs> buying that many vaccines. Uh, and even if we buy, so the way we have uh, our Moderna purchases, there's a certain number, I believe 10 million or so doses, the numbers, I might get the numbers wrong, but you're getting a smaller number of doses this year, which are for the current vaccines. So the d- double dose vaccine that Moderna has is very similar to the Pfizer vaccine, uh, mm-hmm. Pfizer BioNTech vaccine. And then what we have basically committed to is we have basically an option uh, to buy, I don't know, 25 million or 30 million or 40 million, some ridiculous number of booster shots or whatever is the 2022, 2023 vaccine, right? Now, the interesting thing here is that those booster shots have not been approved by the FDA. So FDA is, you know, the the federal, uh, uh, you know, drug approval agency in the US. Mm-hmm. And there's, there are these trials that are running right now with the variations. And, and okay, so let me backtrack the why booster. There's speculation right now, I call it speculation that because there's speculation that over time, um, virus efficiency, efficacy of um, vaccines against a particular virus uh, decreases with time, you, you know, the immunity wanes, right? Mm-hmm. Now, this is just an assumption because we haven't had this thing for that long and we don't really know. We don't have the data yet to show whether or not it does. And there's some data that says, oh, it, you know, in, for example, there's some data from uh, the Israel's uh, Israeli health ministry, which seems to suggest that against the Delta variant, for example, uh, the uh, the efficacy is really poor. But then there is data from which has been published in New, New England Journal of Medicine from the UK, which seems to suggest that both vaccines that we are using currently in Australia they actually perform very well against the Delta variant. Mm. Um, so both the AstraZeneca and the Pfizer. Um, so the UK data and is a study based on health professionals who have been vaccinated using both of those vaccines. And there is a slight reduction of performance with respect to the alpha variant, which was in the UK versus the Delta variant. But, but whether or not they, they're gonna need boosters, I think it's a complete open question uh, in my mind. I read a paper, actually, I didn't really fully understand the paper, uh, <laughs> but I, <laughs> you know, I, I'm a science guy, but I'm not a, a, you know, a virology guy and I'm not an immunology guy. Um, so uh, I read a paper in Nature's, in the journal Nature. Nature is a very high, so the, the only thing I know, uh, which I can use as a, as a filter. So one of the things that I can do, I guess, better than maybe some others, is I'm good at filtering what I call the sources of information, right? Because I know that the nature as a, as a place is a very difficult place to publish information because it has a very high standard of review. It's one of the hardest places to get in. It has, and it's of course one of the highest impact factors if you get your work published there. Um, so 
the, the nature publication, at least in an abstract fashion, was basically saying that if you have an mRNA shot, which is the Pfizer or the Moderna, then you shouldn't need a booster. Now, I think they also, my guess would be, cannot definitely say this because you don't, you don't have longitudinal data, but there's some scientific reasons behind why you shouldn't need a booster, right? <laughs> so that goes back to this thing about Moderna. So Moderna study has, Moderna has been doing some studies with some variations. And one of them, I think, is showing, um, one of the boosters is showing um, a higher level of side effects. And, and therefore, at, at whatever 10% side effect chances, and which is a hospitalization chances, something like that. So effectively, my guess would be that that booster has a low chance of being approved for general use. Because you know, if we don't know really whether we need the boosters or not, there's, there's these risks associated with giving the booster. So who should get those boosters? Maybe immunocompromised people would be approved to you. So I think, so 17% increase because Australia and many other people are ordering options for boosters, but we don't know whether we need the boosters and whether or not those boosters are going to be approved. So I don't know, maybe that's a market really getting ahead of itself, right? In terms of, um, you know, because market is saying, oh, Delta variant, Lambda variant, Peru variant, God knows how many other variants exist and what they're going to do. Um, so, you know, in some way right now, I think the vi vaccines are working well, whether or not the vaccines work over time is I think a question that is uh, open. I think it's an open-ended question, although there's some science that says maybe it works. So hopefully, hopefully it does. Yeah, hopefully hope, it does. Hope, it, hope <laughs> is an investment strategy, but hopefully <laughs> it does because yeah, I mean, we kind of need it to, right? So yeah, this is one case where we would be happy if the um, if the pharma companies actually didn't have to make extra money. You know what I mean? <laughs> of course, the pharma companies, of course, they say that you know, in it is in their. In, interest that they can make variations and a little variations and whatnot, right? So, and, and it's, it, there's a lot of other things that, you know, again, a company like Moderna has a lot of other things that you could do with mRNA. So there's mRNA work already going on with, for example, for flu, uh, the normal flu, right? So the flus that are viral vector vaccines, they, they could be mRNA vaccines as well. Um, but yeah, so there is a financial incentive for pharma companies for having boosters. You should keep that in mind. Uh, but at the same time, I mean, I'm not, I'm not making light of this. Uh, I think at the same time, I trust that, you know, they'd have to run a trial. The FDA would have to approve it. And FDA has very high standards for approving, um, you know, their trials are really rigid and, and things can be knocked back. And emergency approval is different versus non-emergency approval, right? Because mm. in many ways, you're post-emergency now because the vaccines are there and they work. And there are like multiple vaccines. Like, you know, there are three in the US, there's AstraZeneca here. Uh, and there's a bunch of others that exist. You know, if you consider the Russian one, Sputnik, there's an Indian one, Covaxine. At least there are like eight or nine vaccines that we know works against what currently exists. Mm. So it's no longer an emergency in that sense. We should be producing more of these. Mm. Um, there was a, I read a market watch article on Moderna to bring it back to, uh, to investing. Uh, and the, the, the article is Moderna's stock price is ridiculous, says a bank of America <laughs> analyst. And he goes on to say that while Moderna's COVID-19 vaccine has been a major contributor to the global recovery in order to justify $200 billion uh, valuation, one would have to assume two things. Moderna would deliver one to 1.5 billion doses of its COVID-19 vaccine each year through 2038 
um, 100% probability of success for the entire the company's entire pipeline, which includes four programs in phase two, 10 phase one programs, and eight preclinical programs, not yet in human testing, for peak total sales of $30 billion. In comparison, Moderna has recorded total revenue of $7 billion over the past four quarters. So this analyst has a stock price target that's 75% below the current price. So maybe, I don't know, uh, either he's an outlier um, or or the the market is justifying a 17% rise based on 25 total um, orders, I think it is, for Australia. So... uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I don't know how to make heads or tails of that one. But well, you know, I don't know. I don't know much about Moderna, but here's I, can, I have some ideas for Moderna. You know, they can do a stock split. Maybe that'll help them. Um, <laughs> maybe they could just, you know, they could list multiple exchanges. Maybe they could, you know, fork off a, a portion and list it on the ASX. <laughs> <laughs> and then fork off a portion list and do a few other things. You know, you can do other things other than just make boosters. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I do have that concern, the same concern. Uh, Moderna, by the way, just got added to the S&P 500, I think. Um, mm. So yeah, $200 billion valuation or whatever it is, it sounds a lot, you know, but again, if they can, if they can, for example, use the mRNA to solve some raging cancer problem or something like that, then the two hundred billion dollars is going to look like cheap, right? So I I don't I make I don't know much about this company. I really try. Uh, biotech is somewhere where my success rate is really low. Mm. Uh, it's it's yeah. where mine is very low because I don't even try to go there. Um, so I, yeah, I have tried. I have tried, and I think my success rate. The only biotechs I've been successful with are uh, what I call uh, medical device companies. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, man, I have like, I think my success rate is exactly 0% <laughs> for, <laughs> for drug companies. So <laughs> it's really hard. It's, it's, yeah. It's talk about, you know, edge of circular competence or just even not even being able to get an edge at all. It's a, um, it's a fascinating one. Okay. So we've got a little bit of time left here, mate. I would maybe just um, quickly dive into some personal finance hacks. What some of the things that recently appeared on our Australian finance podcast, um, some, we got, we got, we polled the community to try and get some, um, some ways to save money. And some of the people shared on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook, and one of the things which I thought was pretty neat, which is kind of delayed gratification um, in practice, which is just thirty-day rule. So if you're going to if you're going to buy something that you really want, obviously not like a, you know, something that you need day to day, but something big like a television, a phone, a laptop, whatever. Wait thirty days and see if you still feel the same. Set a um, calendar reminder, and then you'll be able to determine if it was an emotional slash impulse buy. Um, so that's an interesting one. And another one for our people that long, like long haul flights or even just flights around Australia, um, take your own um, two minute noodles to the plane and just ask for some hot water. I don't know about you, but I can't stand the, the, the noodles that they give you on the plane. Uh, it's been a while since we've had to travel, but um, that's a little hack that I already knew about beforehand. Um, and there's all the usual ones like call up your bank, ask for a different interest rate. Um, each time you get a pay rise, invest the difference rather than spend it because otherwise it becomes lifestyle inflation. Uh, so many good ones here. Meal planning obviously works for people that particularly have a family um, and track where your money goes, just some basic ones. So these are some of the picks from our 
from our community. I'll put the, a link in the show notes. We always try and include one or two of these in here just to kind of bring it back to reality. There's actually a really interesting article uh, quite a while ago now by uh, Josh Brown from Ritholtz Wealth Management, who basically said, if you are an investor, like uh, an investment advisor or something like that, if you can bring it back to personal finance, it cuts through all the noise. And it's so true, I think. So that's why we do it. Um, and I was going to say, you know, so the, the two that were there, they're brilliant ones, so, you know, invest the, the extra from your raise. Mm-hmm. Here's the problem, huh? Uh, Josh Frydenberg is going to hate you for doing that. Yeah. You know, he would like you to spend, you know, if you got $200 extra, he wants you to spend 205 and you are telling people to go and invest the 200 down. <laughs> so, so you can invest, but you'll sink the economy. That's all going to be on you, Owen. <laughs> well, I was in his electorate for a while, so he better be nice. But, uh, you know, there's another interesting one, which was um, just kind of, it's a very unique one, but um, this couple wrote in and said uh, they've been house sitting since 2017. And mm-hmm. they, and they, instead of renting or buying a house, they've moved around Australia. Um, it's forced them to live, you know, in a way that's, keeping expenses low and they reckon they've saved tens of thousands of dollars just by living this lifestyle and they work remotely and do all these types of things. And I, and there's a website that they talked about called Aussie house sitters. And it's a really interesting way. I mean, it's a particular type of person that would do that, but um, they said the next six months is in Townsville to look after a cat and a swimming pool, all rent free. So there's something for you. If you're out of lockdown, you want to travel around Australia, but you don't want to pay. Maybe that's one way to do it. Mate, last thing of the day, we always talk about two stocks to watch. Um, maybe I think I went first last time. So maybe you can share the company. Maybe a big well, surprise uh, you. Drum roll. I, I'm going to keep it easy and short and simple. I'll say that I think, you know, you know, irrespective of all the, um, I think, the noise around Elmo and the fact that, you know, okay, there's a acquired earning exactly as, uh, as Owen said, um, that company's, when I last checked, it's EV over ARR, so enterprise value, which is basically market cap, um, minus cash plus debt, uh, divide that by the annual recurring revenue was less than four. That's very low. <laughs> that is very low. For so a company if, that's growing at, you know, in the 20s, uh, um, organically. Yeah, well, well, let's say even if it's growing at, if, let's say it's even growing at 15%, <laughs> even mm-hmm. for that. And if this company can even grow at 10% uh, for the next five to 10 years, then this would, you know, this sounds like a really, really low multiple. Um, I think it's, you know, is it is it the highest quality SaaS company you can buy or software company? Probably not. Mm. But when you adjust it for the uh, for the price, I think it's you're getting a really, really good deal. If you can be patient and let management execute, um, I think this can turn out well. So I'm just saying uh, my pick would be Elmo. Hmm. Over to you. Okay. Okay, that's great. I like it. And it's a, it's a business that I should probably take another look at. I'm going to do one a bit different, which is not necessarily a company that I'm looking to buy or sell. It's just an interesting business. I talked about PEXA last week, which we've since done a valuation on. Um, I'm going to uh, talk about just a company called Cobram Estate. You might know Cobram when you go to your uh, Woolies or your Coles and you see the olive oil section. If it's true olive oil, if it tastes bitter, if it's true olive oil, it's actually incredibly good for you. And so um, Cobram Estate, I believe, uh, produces 71% of Australia's total olive oil production. Um, its farms are measured in thousands of hectares, whereas, say, um, in Spain, they might be five hectares. So um, if you're thinking about olive oil production, that's the scale of this business. It's responsible for the Cobram Estate and the Red Island um, 
brands of olive oil. So you'll see them everywhere. Um, one of the things that I'll, I'll give you an inside tip. I'm not much of an olive oil connoisseur myself, even though I'm coming across as one. The extra virgin olive oil, which is the purple label, is the top of the range olive oil from Cobra Estate. You typically pay a bit extra, but if you're making something nice, well worth it. Um, and the business is interesting uh, because it's IPOing today. And it came to the market without giving a reason why it was IPOing, and it didn't set a price. So the market was effectively in free float. And I'm just looking at the ASX website as we speak. It looks like it's currently priced about $1.84. It opened at $1.84. It went up to $1.88, back down to $1.81. This is all in the first couple of hours of trading. And now it's What's the market cap? That is a very good question. And I do not have that in front of me at this share price. So I will have to defer to, I'll have to take that on notice. Thank you, sir. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So I don't actually know exactly what it is. I should know this. Um, um, Doesn't CBA or something else tell us what the market? I'll give you some numbers. Uh, EBITDA forecast for FY21 is $68 million. But the thing about Cobram Estate, which is um, the way olive oil and olives are produced, is that they have good and bad years. So you know that that's coming. But um, Lachlan Bird Jensen has written about this for Ras Media. He's actually said that it makes it very hard to forecast. So um, because there's you know, there's expected seasonality when you talk about companies that are exposed to the environment and agriculture, but this company actually will experience seasonality within a 24 month cycle too. So, you know, there's, I mean, this is a company that's been around for, I think a couple of decades now, and it's not really at break even. So it's, it's a business, like I said, EBITDA is, you know, up, up in the sixties, but um, net cash, um, from operations around 18 million. If you take out CapEx, you're looking at about 15, 16 million. So you're left with about two to 3 million. Um, they estimate net cash flow um, in the year ahead will be negative 2 million. So this is a business that's been around for a long time. Still got the founders at the helm. Um, just a business that's interesting. And if you like olive oil, you might put it on your watch list or at least your shopping list. So, and we'll get back to you with the, uh, the market cap in due course. And that's, that's Cobram Estate. So ASX CBO is the ticket code. So we've got two interesting ones. We've got Elmo and we've got Cobram. If you're on Twitter, say good day to us. Uh, we'll tweet this out. This comes out on a Saturday morning at 7 a.m. For the, for the early birds in lockdown. Um, turns out Saturday's our most popular day to listen to a podcast too across the whole Rask business. So that's quite okay. interesting. Yeah, no surprise there, mate, we've got to say. Um, and if people want to find out more about you and Seven Investing, where can they go? Oh, they can go to well, seveninvesting.com forward slash subscribe if they want to subscribe to our picks and use the RASC code to uh, get a discount, $10 off the first month. Um, yep. Well worth the Don't want to subscribe? Don't want to subscribe? That's also okay. Uh, we are here. We'll, we'll chat about stuff. <laughs> yep, we sure will. But yep, I, I can tell you it's well worth it. If you're interested in investing in US companies, fast growing companies, all different types of companies, well worth, well worth the subscription. Um, and if you want to find out more about what I'm doing at Rask, you can head to rask.com.au. That's www.rask.com.au. And Eban, always a pleasure, mate. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for joining. I'm, I'm going to, I was going to say something that uh, today was a well-oiled podcast. Well, it was. It was because a well-oiled a podcast, actually. Podcast, yeah. Because yeah. of the because of the olive oil. Oh, very well done, sir. <laughs> I like what you did there. Uh, indeed, always a pleasure, mate. Always a pleasure. Thank you.